0: Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble.
1: There are a lot of decisions that are to be made in life, and certainly in the Christian life that are not black and white. There's a lot of decisions that are made that fall into what we would call gray areas. Uh, Decisions that even followers of Christ differ over based on conscience and convictions. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We're coming up on Halloween. There is nothing wrong with letting your kids trick-or-treat on Halloween. There's no actual, actual power of Satan in the walking up to a door and getting uh, candy from your neighbors and connecting with your neighbors. In fact, it's actually a very strategic way to meet your neighbors. But how do you feel towards parents that maybe have a strong conviction against it? Or how do you respond to parents that have a strong conviction against it? I'll give you another example. There's nothing wrong with playing Texas Hold'em on your annual family extended vacation, okay? Nothing wrong with that. In fact, playing a game of poker is some innocent fun. But imagine at your, your family getaway vacation for the year that the wife of your uncle who's been struggling with a gambling addiction asks you to skip this particular tradition this year at the family vacation, How do you respond to that? I'll give you another example. There is nothing wrong uh, with social drinking at happy hour on a Friday night after a week of work with your coworkers. Nothing wrong with drinking a, a glass of wine or having a beer. In fact, it's a great way to actually connect and build relationships with coworkers. But imagine that one of your friends in your office has just recently come to Christ and they want to hang out with you on Friday night, and they've just, just experienced some freedom from an addiction to alcohol. And they tell you, I'm just not comfortable going with you to happy hour. How do you respond to that? See, these are modern situations that are no different than what we see happening here in the church at Corinth. They were dealing with very similar issues. And one of the issues that was going on is described in verse one. And this is, again, when you see that word now concerning or that phrase, this is the Corinthian church writing a letter to Paul saying, what do we do about this? Paul, give us counsel, give us advice, right? So verse one, now concerning food offered to idols. There were two groups of people in this young church. The one group had no problem eating food or meat that had been offered to idols. The other had a big problem with it. Now, what were they actually disagreeing over? Well, in the first century, pagan temples were common. And by that, when I say a pagan temple, I mean a temple to some false god, okay? Were very common, and it was a family ordeal. A family would bring an animal to the temple. A priest in this temple would sacrifice the animal. Parts of the animal would be burned, but the the meat would be returned to the family. They'd go home that evening, they'd throw a party, they'd invite their neighbors and friends, they'd cook the meat up and have a delicious meal, and some of those that were invited were some believers from the church. Or sometimes the meat wouldn't be returned to the family, it'd be actually sold to the local marketplace, and it would show up there in the local market to be purchased, so you could be purchasing meat that had been part of an animal sacrifice in the pagan temple, you see the dilemma. So these two groups disagreed over how to handle that and what they should do. What do we do? Is it right? Is it wrong? How are we supposed to handle this? The closest parallel, parallel, although this is probably unlikely to happen, but at our chili cook-off, our annual chili cook-off at Christ Church East, somebody brings a pot of chili, and next to the name, they put a little description. The local Satan worshipers, had a table set up at the mall, handing out this meat, and it is delicious meat, and it has made this taste this chili taste amazing. And you show up, and one of your friends comes with you, and your friend is new in Christ and really has just maybe come out of, of, of a cult of Satan worship. And they see that, and they're deeply disturbed. What do you do? You say, hey, there's freedom. It's just meat. It's no big deal. There's freedom. Enjoy this delicious chili, right? Or do you not? What do you do? That's that's the issue here that the Corinthians are facing. They're saying, what should we do? And so the question is, how do you make decisions in these, these gray areas, what we would call areas of Christian freedom? And to answer this, we're gonna answer two questions, okay? First, what is freedom? And then second, what is freedom constrained by? First, what is freedom? It means two things right relationship with creation and right relationship with God. Now let's start with right relationship with creation. Look again at verse one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Again, it's in quotes. Why? Because this is probably a a phrase that was in the letter that the church sent to Paul. So Paul's now re-quoting that phrase and saying, let me explain this. Okay, so what, what is this knowledge? Verse four. Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Paul says idols are, they're nothing. They're man-made. They have no power. They, They can do nothing to this food. They can do nothing to this meat, right? They're just, they have no existence. You see, an idol or a false god is something good in God's creation that is elevated to God-like status. Take an example from this church in the first century. Remember I told you there was a big hill uh, out right on the edge of this city, massive hill, and on the top of the hill was a temple to the god Aphrodite. And this was the god of sex and love and beauty. And here's how it would work. Sex and love, good parts of God's good creation, Right? but they had elevated it to godlike status so that if you were in Corinth and you were having trouble conceiving, you were having infertility problems, having trouble having children, you would take an animal up to this temple, the priest would sacrifice it, and you would hope that this God, Aphrodite, would then bless you with children. Or if you were struggling in your relationship and you didn't have a spark and you didn't have romance and love and, and you wanted a little bit of romantic spark in your relationship, you take an animal up to the temple, the priest would sacrifice it in hopes that this God would give a spark and give a, a love and romance to your relationship. You see, a good part of God's creation, sex and love, that elevates to God-like status. But do you see that it's not, it's a no God. It's a man-made God. And so, so the, the point here is it's, this God has no power to infect or to do something to food or to meat. It's a no God. Although there are many of these so-called gods, verse five says, verse six, yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. All things come from God. All things are through Christ. And so when the world takes some piece of God's good creation and perverts it and distorts it. We don't fear it or run from it. We we reclaim it as God's good creation, how he designed it to be used, right? And that's why in verse eight, it says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat it. We're no better if we eat it, right? It's just food. So freedom begins with having a right relationship to creation. But second, it's a right right relationship to God. Right relationship to God's creation, right relationship with God. Look at the second half of verse 1 again through verse 3. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, Paul makes this major distinction here in these few verses. Between, he uses the word knowledge, that's a noun, completed, state, right? Completed, static, finished. And the the word know, which is a verb, which is a process, which is ongoing, which is learning. What Paul's saying is that knowledge alone is not sufficient. Knowledge isn't a bad thing, but true knowledge or true knowing of God is growing into the knowledge we have about God. Let me explain that. You can have knowledge that God is sovereign and in control, but it's a whole nother thing to know and experience that God is sovereign and in control, right? You can know that Jesus Christ is sufficient. You can have that knowledge, but it's a whole different thing to know and experience that Jesus is sufficient. You can have knowledge that God is the one true God, the only one true living God, but it's a whole nother thing to know and experience that God is the one true God. And so what you had here in this young church in Corinth is people that were on different Parts of this spectrum of knowing God, right? The strong group had knowledge of God, of him being the only true God. And in some ways probably had, had known and experienced and grew into that. This, this, this other weaker group that we're gonna get to that really was struggling with eating this food sacrificed to idols, knowledge alone wasn't sufficient. They, there, there's, a, there's a knowing and an experiencing and they, were, they just were young in that, Right? I want you to imagine getting married, going on your honeymoon, and you both read an autobiography of of your spouse's life. And you get to the end of your honeymoon and you have both read an autobiography of each other. You know each other's skills and competencies and personality And you get to the end of the honeymoon after reading these autobiographies and you look at each other and go, this is great. Our work is done. Our marriage is going to be great. We have knowledge of each other. Of course not. You may enter marriage having knowledge of your wife's compassion, that she's a compassionate woman, but you don't yet fully know your wife's compassion. You may enter marriage having knowledge of your husband's thoughtfulness. But you don't yet know and experience fully your husband's thoughtfulness. You see, marriage is a lifelong knowing and growing in knowing one another. It's the same with God. We can have knowledge about God, and that is important. And I will say it over and over in this sermon. Paul is not saying knowledge is not important. You have to have knowledge about who God is, his character, his ways. But we grow into knowing and experiencing the knowledge we have about God. And that happens over a lifetime. It's a process. It's a relationship. And that's why Paul says, right? He does not yet know as he ought to know. You don't know everything about God. God is, you grow into knowing God. More and more and more in your life. We can never plunge the depths of who God is. We grow into that. So freedom, that's, that's what freedom is. It's a right relationship with creation where we don't elevate good things to God-like status. Uh, freedom is a right relationship with God. Now, if we pause there and stop there and say, there you go, you have the decision matrix, that's how you make decisions in these gray areas. This would be woefully insufficient because it's not just what is freedom as a follower of Christ, but the second question that's imperative is what is freedom to be constrained by? What is your freedom to be constrained by? Look at verse nine, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul says, take care that this right of yours, you know what he's saying here? To this strong group or this group in the Corinthian church that had no problem with eating foods offered in an idol's temple, he's saying, you're right, you're thinking right. These idols are no gods. They have no power. Everything comes from the one true and living God. You're right. You're thinking right. But your freedom is not constrained by your rights or your knowledge. If you constrain your freedom by your rights, Paul says two things are gonna happen. Two things. Number one, You become prideful. You become arrogant, right? Verse one again, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see, knowledge without love produces pride. Freedom without love produces arrogance. You become, if if you take this approach, you literally become a brain on a stick. I mean, let that image set in. You become a brain on a stick. Now listen, we are intellectual beings, absolutely. But we're not just intellectual beings. We're emotional beings. We are volitional beings. Another way to say it, we have a head, we have a heart, we have hands. And when you reduce or constrain your freedom by your rights, that's the first thing that happens. You become arrogant. When you constrain your freedom by your knowledge alone, you become conceited. And then that brings us to the second thing that happens when you constrain your freedom by your rights. Number two, you destroy people. Look at, look at verse 11. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Now, now how, how is this? Well, if you look at verse ten, it describes what happens. So, you walk into this pagan temple. You go to this dinner party where they're serving meat or food that had been offered to the idols and to the gods. And there's someone with you, friend in the church, that is of the other side that, that is that doesn't believe in or is uh, uh, their conscience is stricken by eating this food. And so you, by your maturity and knowledge, are eating freely with this person next to you, in essence, by your actions, saying, listen, you've got freedom in this area. There's no condemnation in Christ. This is a really good meal. You're missing out. Eat it. What's it say? That that weak person, there's three things it describes. They're destroyed. Their conscience is defiled says that they're wounded. Why? Because look at verse seven. You don't understand verse seven. But some through former association with idols, eat the food is really offered to an idol. See, what's happening here is people have a past. They have a history. And that past and that history has significant influence on them. And in this case, there's people that have a past in this pagan worship that even though the knowledge of these gods are are nothing, their past has significant influence on them. And it causes them when they eat this food to become guilty and to become ashamed and to feel condemned. And they leave the dinner party absolutely wounded, absolutely conscience defiled. You know, I I was uh, in... North Carolina, where I used to do some ministry, there was a young man, I'll never forget it. He came to Christ out of a, an awful family background. Had just awful background, awful wounds, awful hurt, and therefore he had a very sinful, rebellious background. And he had come to Christ and and, and, and he was starting to, to be around other men in the church and, and people in the uh, youth ministry. And, you know, he was just getting connected and, and he got wind of some, some men who were, um, you know, weekly or bi-weekly gathering at a local pub to, to drink a beer and to study the Bible and maybe to smoke a cigar here and there. And I remember him coming to me just perplexed, disturbed, right? Because he had come out of that. In a bad way, not just one, but many. I mean, he had come out of that lifestyle and he couldn't get his mind around it. And I remember thinking, oh boy, I could ruin Dante right now. I I could grab him and say, listen, brother, you're free in Christ. Come with me, man. We're gonna go to this pub. We're gonna study the Bible. You'll see, we'll have a beer. It's really okay. You're gonna see there's nothing wrong with it. He would have come and he would have been wounded. He would have been hurt. His conscience would have been defiled. That's what we're talking about here. Right, that you can't constrain your freedom by your rights. So if you can't constrain your freedom by your rights, what is it to be constrained by? Look at Paul's conclusion in verse 13. He wraps up his entire response with this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, it doesn't pick it up in this verse. This is actually, this is a double negative. It means, doesn't mean just I won't. It means no, not ever, 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 Paul says. I'll never do it if it makes my brother stumble. Right, that freedom is constrained by love for the weak. The question is, why? Why is your freedom in Christ constrained by love for the the weak? And Paul gives two reasons in this passage of why freedom is constrained by love for the weak. The first is this. Paul's saying, the only reason that you have right knowledge about God is because Jesus loved you when you were weak and when you were wrong. Right? Look, at, look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And then listen to this. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul is saying, you are demanding your rights and your knowledge, and by that you're destroying this weak person. Jesus Christ did just the opposite. Jesus did not demand his rights. Rather, he gave up his rights to love the weak, to love the wrong. Said another way, Jesus did not Demand his rights as the sinless one and destroy you. Rather, he became sin, died on the cross, rose from the dead to give you life. Jesus gave up his rights to give life. That's why we read in verse 12, What Paul is saying, that any self-interest that damages a fellow believer in Christ is a sin against Christ, right? Any self-interest, any demanding rights, any whatever it may be that damages a fellow believer is a sin against Christ because Christ gave up his rights to love the weak. And Paul's telling this young church, you need to give up your rights to love the weak, that's the first reason why love for weak is the, what our freedom should be constrained by. The second reason that our Christian freedom needs to be constrained by love for the weak is this. Look at the end of verse one. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, these Corinthians, they had the idea that if we have the knowledge, right? We've already looked at it. God is the only true God. All these other gods are false gods. They're no gods. They have no power, right? The Corinthians believed if we can just get this knowledge to these others, they'll get it and grow up into Christian maturity. And what Paul's saying here is, listen, this is not just an intellectual problem. That's what he means in verse seven. It's not just give them the knowledge, and then boom, they're good. Again, knowledge is important. Knowledge of God and his ways is absolutely critical, but knowledge alone is not sufficient to grow into maturity. Again, we're intellectual beings. We're emotional beings. We are volitional beings. Head, heart, hands. Paul's saying that love, right? Love is what builds someone up to maturity. Love is what builds all of that up towards Maturity. You're not going to grow into Christian maturity by right thinking alone. You need right thinking, but not alone. I mean, listen, if that were the case, I'm just going to be brutally honest here. If that were the case, then why do you still turn to sin and idolatry when you know that Christ alone is sufficient? Can you imagine a brother and a sister turning to sin and idolatry, and you say, what are you doing? You know Christ is sufficient. Come on, what's the big deal? Clean it up. (laughs) Come on, clean it up. No, right thinking alone is not enough. It's important. Paul's saying knowledge alone is insufficient. You see, love, love realizes that our problems cannot just get reduced to a merely intellectual problem. Love enters into the deep struggle that Paul talks about with these people in verse seven, former association with idols. That's another way of saying they're, they're deep, conflicted, painful past. Love enters into that struggle and realizes that an intellectual answer is not sufficient, important, but not sufficient. Love enters into that struggle. Love gives up rights. Love gives up freedoms. Love gives up knowledge. Not gives up knowledge, put it on the shelf, but gives up the understanding that knowledge alone is sufficient. Love is the priority over our rights, over our freedoms. That love for the weak. Several years back, there was a, a great Super Bowl commercial, it's a Coca Cola commercial. And uh, it was the one, I don't know if you'll remember it, but I'll describe it, it's great. It was, a. a, there were two border patrol soldiers out in the middle of this like dusty desert, hot. um, And there was this, this road and these two soldiers were guarding, right, their turf. And they were walking back and forth. They had like 1800s military style uniforms on. And they would march back and forth, and they each had a little shack, a little hut on either side. And they're marching back and forth, grim-faced, serious. And then a little piece of paper blows across the border. And the one guy pulls his sword out, and he stabs the paper. And he flings it back across the border, gives a snide look at that soldier, and they keep marching. And then, of course, the one soldier opens up an ice chest. And he pulls out a Coca-Cola and he starts drinking it. And the other soldier who's marching kind of turns and looks and he's, he's longing. <laughs> he's longing for a Coke. And that soldier, other soldier, pulls out a second Coca-Cola and he goes over to hand it to him. And this soldier was like, mm. you know, it's got this struggle. What do I do? So he ends up setting it on the ground and the other soldier wipes away the, the line in the sand, literally there was a line in the sand, wipes it away, grabs the Coke, and they, st- they both start drinking Coca-Cola. And they start grinning a little bit. And they look at each other and they smile for a brief second. And then they, huh! they get back into their mode and they start marching again. It is a, it's a beautiful picture. It's not beautiful. It's a good picture. It's a good picture of what relationships can become when we think more about our rights, more about protecting our rights, more about defending our turf, than about loving the other. And obviously the answer is to those of us that, all of us that defend our rights and protect our turf and protect our rights, obviously the answer is not a can of Coke, that doesn't do it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says that he gave up his rights as the sinless one with perfect knowledge of the Trinity, gave up his rights to love you when you were weak and wrong and rebellious. And the scriptures say that when you trust Jesus Christ, when you depend on him, that that very life of Christ by the Holy Spirit flows through you and empowers you to be one who puts love as a priority, love for the weak, love for the other as a priority over your own rights and your own freedoms. Let's pray. Father, we confess are thinking more about our rights, thinking more about being right than we do about loving others. We even confess, thinking that if we can just get the right knowledge to somebody, that that would completely transform them. And while right knowledge is is correct and important, Father, we need to have right knowledge of who you are and your ways. We confess Stopping there and thinking that right thinking alone is sufficient. We heed the words that Paul's saying here. That he says he would never eat meat ever, ever, ever again. He'd give up that right completely in order to love the weak. Father, may that be true of us. May we put a priority on love for the weak on love for the vulnerable, on love for the other. And Father, may you change us and transform us by your spirit, by Jesus, the one who gave up his rights to love us when we were wrong, to love us when we were weak, to love us when we were sinful. And Jesus, thank you for the promise that you continue to love us when we're wrong. You continue to love us when we're weak so that, that love flows through us to the world around us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.